Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSA's new framework, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is with David Rollander, a leader in his field and a well-sought-out speaker for Fortune 500 organizations and the big four accounting firms. David has, quite frankly, been there and done that in the military, academia, and business. His insights, experience, and expertise enable him to deliver high-value impact, relevance, and results for his clients. When you have survived, (laughs) I can't believe this number, but when I I saw this, I was really amazed, bullets and missiles on 208 combat missions as a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, it gives you an edge, a focus, and a can-do attitude. David has an MBA in finance, and he has built three companies and coached CEOs and executives throughout his career. He is a perpetual student, disciplined listener, and a professional speaker for over 30 years. Today, we'll be discussing leadership principles based on David's new book, The CEO Code. Good morning, David. Good morning, Sonia. How are you? wonderful this morning. I am so excited to talk to you about this wonderful new book. Uh, I had the pleasure of reading it over vacation, and I I couldn't put it down. It was a very great read, which leads me to my my primary question for for the show is, what was the inspiration to write the book? Well, the the inspiration goes way back. I've been working with executives, CEOs, uh, partners in law firms and accounting firms and different executives for a few decades. And uh, I noticed over time that I saw certain patterns and certain common problems such that I put together a training process and I've written articles. But I, I kept saying in the back of my mind, I really need to write all of this down in a book and share it with people just basically to to be helpful. What what happened was in my personal life I became a grandpa and that gave me that little emotional oomph to say I've got to get it down. So the book is dedicated to my grandson Sixon, but what it is is it's a book that has principles and practical examples and stories that are all true, that are all real. Uh, based on experience and the expertise that I've been able to pick up over the years, and it's basically to pass on my legacy to my grandson from a personal standpoint, but to people in general and to help people become more productive, more focused, and build a masterpiece out of their personal life and their professional life. I really um, appreciate you sharing that story, especially with you know the concept of uh, linking that legacy to your grandson, because I, I think that's important. Everybody's got their own set of uh, values and, and core um, 
principles that they want to live by. And I, I think writing it down, like you said, you had all this intellectual capital, right? And it, it's putting it on paper to share. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of what I, I got from the gist of the inspiration. And, and throughout the book, I was reading uh, various chapters, and there was a common theme, and I especially love the stories that you placed to, to hit a home run, basically, on some of the core concepts. But one of the concepts I saw you promote throughout the book was the power of one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, and, and I wanted you to explain to our audience um, how – have you been promoting the power of one-on-one -on -one meetings throughout your career? And, and could you explain what are the top benefits that come from this type of meeting? Sure, I'd be happy to. One-on-one um, -on -one meetings are nothing new. They're nothing profound. But there's something that uh, a lot of people have a tendency to ignore, especially because it's so easy to use technology. You can text somebody, you can email them, you can call them on the phone, you can do Skype, you can do all different kinds of things rather than having a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And what has happened is that uh, over time, the last, let's say, 15 to 20 years, they have been downplayed more and more within organizations. But historically, I mean, if you think back to the true history, uh, communication and one-on-one -on -one was very, very important. People would travel miles by horseback or they would walk miles just to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with somebody. Uh, there's a very good book out there, a bestseller by a fellow named Duhigg, who uh, wrote the book, The Power of Habit. And so what I advocate is you develop a habit. And he talks about a, a concept that's been around a while, a keystone habit, the ultimate habit, a habit that can actually change the culture, that can change what goes on within an organization, what goes on within the bowels and the fiber of the organization. And what I have come up with is, as a keystone habit, one-on-one -on -one meetings. Why? One-on-one -on -one meetings give you an opportunity to see another person in a completely different light than you do when you see them on television, uh, on YouTube, uh, on Skype, or on the phone, or with any technology. Uh, you get to smell, feel, sense their emotions. Another thing that's come up in the last numerous years, 15 or more, is the whole concept of uh, emotional intelligence, which is based on a lot of brain research and medical research. Uh, a good little guidebook in that arena is by Daniel Goldman. He is a psychologist who summarized scientific information that he has found over the years. Uh, so it's a very nice summary book that he wrote of other people's research. And uh, emotion has an amazing amount to do with the way people be perform. Uh, historically, in my experience, emotion was not important in the workplace. If you had a headache, if you didn't feel good, take an aspirin, go home, come back tomorrow. Uh, that's just not the reality of how people operate. So by having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, you get to understand what's going on emotionally with people. You get to express feelings. You get to express empathy. You get to see their emotions, which are really primary drivers. And so it takes a relationship to an entirely different level than any other form of communication. And I'm glad that, that you say that it's taking communication to another level. My personal experience is we, we have face-to-face -face meetings, uh, and it's at least quarterly on, on key goal-setting sessions and, and so forth, but we have weekly meetings, and you're right, that the use of technology is sometimes overplayed or overused, and that 
body language you get to see in front of you, I think for me, I, I feel that that's 50%, if not more, of the communication because I can see how they're reacting to words as I say it. So, <clears throat> you know, over the phone, it's great. It, it's a very quick fix. But if it's something important like a behavioral, you know, uh, improvement that you would like to see in terms of uh, their performance, yeah, I, I could send a quick email, sure. But but the impact of the face-to-face for us and our culture is, is way more infa- impactful once we have those one-on-one meetings. So I'm glad that you've shared with us some of your own experiences because I personally um, saw a connection when you wrote that down that that is something that we try to keep in our culture to have more frequent one-on-one meetings and not less. And in terms of, of this digital age and, and the use of technology, I'm glad that you kind of mentioned that in your response. So given this push, I, I would say from just our culture, U.S. culture, and I would say even globally, how would you advise companies to use technology to communicate then? Well, com- uh, technology is indispensable. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. I love it. I was, In fact, I was chairman CEO of a dot-com for uh, about five years, and I I totally uh, embrace technology. I, um, in fact, one time I was on vacation um, back in, in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden I noticed my wife was taking my picture. We were at Williamsburg, and I was standing leaning next to a building texting somebody. And I said, what are you taking my picture for? And she said, I just wanted you to remember how you spent your vacation. <laughs> texting. So, you know, technology is great. I love technology. It's very, very useful. The primary uses of it are obviously data and speed. I mean, speed is life now in our world. And what we can do with technology used to take the Pony Express days and weeks to do. Uh, So it's speed, it's data, it's voluminous, it's uh, information, it's the ability to transfer entire documents quickly. Um, It it is indispensable. And it it is good for that. But when it comes to person to person, mano a mano, when it comes to relating to another person and getting them emotionally involved, yeah, you can do a pretty good job maybe with a video or a YouTube kind of a thing. But there's nothing like, uh, there's nothing that replaces one-on-one communication. And yet technology is absolutely indispensable. But mainly, I would say, for data and for speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just recently had a meeting with a client, and it was a face-to-face meeting, and uh, this individual loves to get emails. And that's fine, uh, but in this lunch, we had a very uh, specific goal. And our goal with him was we want to know how and when certain types of technology you, you want us to use. Do you want us to pick up the phone when it's this type of issue? When is it that you really need to have a face-to-face before an email gets sent out? And it was actually the first time someone sat him down to try to hone in on his expectations of the results he wanted from our service. And we found uh, a lot of key points in how he absorbed information, and you're correct, that there's, number one, speed and the volume. He, He definitely loved the fact that we were timely, et cetera, but there were certain categories of data, okay? He absolutely we just had to have a face-to-face meeting. 
like don't put it in an email. It's just not how he would like to be communicated with uh, in terms of the form of an email because it's two-dimensional. You know, a word to him could mean something totally different than what I intended <clears throat> to say to him. And so it was a great little powwow because setting those expectations, uh, especially for what we do and on the compliance side, it it created a, a better, um, I don't want to say playing field, just a, a venue to vet out uh, the different types of communications we have available to us and more importantly, well, what's your expectation? And, you know, let's drill down deeper as to how you want to get this information from us. Um, in, your, uh, in your book, you talk about the ability to see patterns and, and some of the key skills a leader needs to have. But what are those key skills a leader should have to see those patterns? Well, pattern, uh, in fact, my next book, Sonia, is going to be about pattern recognition and this whole topic. Uh, the, the biggest and most important criteria for pattern recognition, if we can call it that, um, is experience. And there is nothing like experience to to give a person uh, pattern recognition. That's why young people can often learn things from older folks or people that have more experience because the older folks are going to see things differently than the young folks. Now, the young folks are going to also be able to see certain things differently and see certain patterns, but when you stay current so that you're not being, shall we say, one-upped by not knowing um, about technology, as a for instance, um, experience is the is the ultimate the ultimate teacher of how to have pattern recognition and then it takes number two i would say an awareness of uh, yourself and of others and again this goes back to emotional intelligence also which is all about self-awareness and awareness of others and without awareness um you you will never see the patterns i as you know i work a lot with uh partners in some of the major accounting firms, Ernst Young, Deloitte, and those kinds of organizations, as well as attorneys. They're incredibly brilliant. They're very talented. I, I love working with them. But what's interesting to me is that it seems the more qualified they are and the more intelligent they are in uh, number crunching and in all of the sophisticated um, knowledge that they have, there seems to be a shortfall of people reading skills, uh, which I guess is part of the reason why I wrote the book as well. So it takes experience to recognize patterns, it takes awareness, and then it takes knowledge. And knowledge comes from studying, from reading, from going to seminars, from getting on the Internet and doing your research, um, and all of those things together. And then it takes time. It's not something that you can just take a vitamin pill and get pattern recognition or or get that awareness. It, it takes time, and you have to stub your toe and bend your nose a few times in the process. So there's no easy easy solution to it. Yeah, there's no um, quick fix. It, it, it's uh, more of a journey rather than just trying to get to a fast destination. Um, and, and in terms of those leaders who can see those patterns and act upon them, in your experience, what are some of the results that happen when they can't do that? Go ahead, go ahead. The results that happen is they crash and burn or they lose money or they make a mistake or they have an error or they have to apologize or they have to uh, 
go back and redo because they didn't have the understanding to do it right the first time, so they have to do it again. Um, if you don't recognize patterns, the sooner you recognize the patterns, the better. And you're not going to always be right when you think you recognize the patterns. So part of part of it is to recognize that you don't necessarily see the whole picture, but you know there's something going on. And then having the knowledge and the skills to ask questions so that you can identify without offending somebody or without cutting them short or without making a blunder, that you can identify, am I on the right track, or, or what do you mean by that, and, and when to qualify people, when to qualify situations, and how to qualify people in situations is all part of it. And that comes only when you have a lot of experience and you have the awareness and the intent to really try and learn. Otherwise, um, well, well, quite candidly, we hire people because of their technical skills and their abilities with a particular function, job, description and invariably we eliminate people or set them free or liberate them or fire them because of their inability to recognize patterns especially in the people arena they cause problems with other people time and time and time again the most brilliant accountants that i've seen sometimes because of their inability to think in another dimension other than numbers lose their job or almost lose their job. In fact, several of my clients, that's been one of our big issues, is working on helping them um, improve in those areas. They know the numbers. They know taxes. They know finance. They know, you know, and I've got an MBA in finance, so I, I understand that somewhat. Um, but they don't get the patterns of human behavior, which are so very, very critical. That's what gets you the promotion. That's what gets you the deal. That's what makes the sale. That's what makes stuff happen. If you don't have that, you lose. When I was uh, a staff at Anderson, I was part of the recruiting staff uh, or helping HR do some of the recruiting efforts. And, uh, you know, the concept is you just graduated, so you still have some of those core relationships at your university. <clears throat> and one of the core uh, objectives was to not only evaluate the GPA, which is important, but leadership and people skills. So our recruiting efforts, we were um, challenged on a regular basis. Okay, you went to XYZ event. Who did you meet? What what was discussed? What was the feeling that you got out of the discussion? How were they improving, let's say, the accounting association or Beta Alpha Psi? So it was getting us to think more about how do these people connect with others, those that emotional intelligence, that, that connection, rather than just GPA. So there's always a good you know benchmark to have for a GPA. And what we found in the recruiting efforts, when I was a part of it, especially at Anderson, I did some over at Senior LEWAC, is the 4.0 students were, were good students, but they never always equated to the best candidate to hire right. uh, because if eventually you're going to have to deal with situations with clients where you've caught something, an error. You've got to deal with how to deal with those discrepancies and have a, those communication skills with those clients as well as, well as working very, very long hours huddled in a conference room <laughs> during busy season you're going to have to learn how to get along with others and not just stick to a computer and keep reading and studying and memorizing stuff. You've got to work as a team. Uh, so we've, we found uh, in, in both of my experiences working in, in teams that 
uh, 4.0s weren't always our number one target uh, person. You know, it, it, we would much rather have somebody with, let's say, a C plus B GPA if if they especially were the president of the accounting association. You follow? They they had to organize and lead people. Um, so that that's been my personal take when I've read through you know some of those uh, leadership skills and patterns and 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 um, you know what key results if you can't find those patterns. Now, in terms of switching gears a little bit on creativity, how should leaders get in the, in the quote unquote zone to think creatively? Well, you know, the brain is a fascinating thing. We develop, and and I would encourage your listeners to do a little bit of reading on the recent brain research and and figure out about synapses and how the plasticity of the brain works. It's it's a fascinating um, area of study that is that is blossoming. It's it's amazing, and what we have fundamentally found. We, uh, what scientists have, have fundamentally found is that the brain is very plastic. In other words, it is pliable, it changes. So if you want to be more creative, it means that you actually have to change the structure of your brain and how your brain works. It's just your brain is just like a highway and a road system. And the synapses are connected in certain ways and in little babies if synapses and things are not used, they they lose brain cells at an amazing rate because they're not using those brain cells. So if you haven't used brain cells for creativity, your your patterns of thinking will not be that way. But the good news is you can choose to change the way your brain is wired. That means it takes hard work. There's a great book about Mozart's brain that's out there that talks about this, and there's several other books one of the things you can do to start becoming more creative is take a different route to school or to work every day or when you go to the store try a new route we do so many this this was an idea that my son mentioned to me he's an artist my so he's very creative very gifted artist by the way but one of his instructors one day told the art students to take a different road to school come a different way Anything like that, playing chess, playing games, anything uh, that you can do to stimulate your brain will help actually playing crossword puzzles, uh, you name it. Anything you can do, reading things on topics that you're not familiar with, maybe archaeology or anthropology or biology or whatever, anything you can do to stimulate other ways of thinking, then what needs to be done is you need to realize that the way creativity works is we incorporate and and understand a lot of data and that's by asking questions getting other people's opinions listening listening absorbing studying researching and then ultimately you have to let it incubate in your brain for a while and then all of a sudden in the shower or as you're lying in your bed trying to go to sleep you'll have an idea well it's very important In fact this happened to me last night i got up at two thirty last night and I had some things going on in my mind that I wanted to capture. I came into my office, which is in my house, and I spent about a half an hour, 45 minutes on the computer, got it all down on paper, and then went back to sleep. Um, It's a matter of letting it incubate and realizing that it takes time, and then all of a sudden something will stimulate your thinking or something will happen, and you'll say, voila, or eureka, or ah, I got it. And and so it's a deliberate act. It is a deliberate act and practice to become creative. 
one of my deliberate quote unquote acts of, of, of getting into it, let's say a zone is, I, uh, as you mentioned in some of the, the aspects of the book, is you know getting out of your core element. Um, so reading accounting journals or internal audit stuff is fine. I, I know I need to be technically balanced, uh, meaning I, I need to know different a- aspects of compliance. But some of my uh, mental, I call it the mental junk food for me, is reading People magazine or, you know, Us Weekly or something that gets me, I'm still reading, but I'm just absorbing different information. And more importantly, I like to see some of those ads and who who are their target markets or what are they trying to achieve with the ad. And it gets me to think creatively in terms of the artwork used in those magazines and how they're, you know, obviously marketing to the masses. And as a business owner, it gets me to think outside of the box in terms of my own practice. But if I continue to keep reading just internal audit magazines and, and accounting journals, et cetera, I'm going to be stuck. You know, And, and I love the fact that you've, you've brought that into the, the book about getting into the zone. It takes practice. It's, it's not something, again, uh, I guess the theme here is that this is a journey. It's, it's just not a final destination. Uh, and in terms of, of company culture that you mentioned in, in the book, there's such a buzzword today. Uh, in our world, we call it the quote-unquote tone at the top, uh, auditors uh, phrase that culture aspect. What are your thoughts on this company culture and the role it plays in hiring? Well, I firmly believe that uh, company culture is uh, influenced by leadership, Um and the whoever is the ultimate leader now that it may be that there's a covert leader or a you know a, especially in smaller organizations where the the uh, organizational chart leader is not the real leader because someone else really has the power or the influence or whatever and we, and we talk a little bit about power and how power works and power is really a very good thing if it's used right but the the culture comes down. Uh, from the top. I remember studying with Drucker at Claremont Graduate University, and and he had many, many stories about how a leader uh, could not uh, totally change who they were, and yet they could be loved or hated, and that didn't matter so much as whether or not they were consistent and whether they did what they said they were going to do, and they had a, uh, a valid if you will, culture that they exhibited by their own behavior. Uh, One of the things that I see in organizations is where people talk a good talk. Uh, You see this in Washington, D.C. They say these pretty flowery things, but then when you understand their, or when you hear about their behavior, whether they're the president or a congressman or a senator or whatever it is, uh, it's it's amazing that that they have the gall to say what they say and do what they do. There's such an incongruity in it, and uh, that's why we don't have have trust. So I think trust is is as a, for instance is a critical value in the culture of an organization. The very best way for a leader to exhibit and and instill culture in the organization is to not only say it but have it documented and written down. As you were saying earlier, it's so very important to write things down to really clarify your thinking. And then their behavior has to exhibit and demonstrate that culture so that if you saw a president or a leader or a, a managing partner uh, in an off-the-job off, off the job 
situation, would they still be behaving the same, or are they two different people? Uh, it's critical in order to get a culture inhibit in, in institute with an organization that behavior be recognized as the the bellwether. I think. Did that answer your question? Yes, yes, you did. I, I, it okay. it brings back a lot of memories about how uh, in high school for me, it, I would trust people's word a lot. As I went through my college years, professional years, I was basing my trust less on some less on what people said, but more on what they did. And also, I was trying to find, uh, especially as a staff, the key. Uh, what I would call deal breakers. In other words, if if someone told me they were going to, they wanted me to be in the office during busy season on a Saturday, where was my supervisor? You know, if I'm willing to put in the extra effort, were they in the office with me or they continuously had other personal commitments or other commitments, but yet I was always committed to the project or the engagement you follow. So I was less concerned about, oh, this client's really important to me, but yet they weren't present there. It makes you feel exploited, doesn't it? It does. And I think that as we age, we should be seeing those patterns that you're trusting people more on their actions and less on what they say that they're going to do for you. You know, it's funny. One of the one of the things that uh, I often see is someone who works incredible hours, um, and you especially see that in the financial services industry, accounting, and that. Um, and they work incredible hours. And I've gotten to know dozens and dozens, scores of of partners in in major uh, the major four accounting firms, as a for instance. And the ones that are working uh, inordinate amount of not just unbelievable number of hours, as you get to really know them well, as I have done, sometimes you find that they're not really doing it because they love their work. They're doing it because they hate their home life, which is just crazy to say. But the reality is, watch what a person pays attention to you to, and you can tell what their unconscious intention is. A person that only is focused on work and nothing else and spends an inordinate amount of time at work, there's a reason for it. And to say that it's because they love their work or they just have so much to do is basically not uh, an accurate representation of the truth. Uh, It probably means that they're trying to avoid some other situation or they're incompetent or some other reason. Now that may sound, that might sound awfully harsh of me to say, but um, just look in the mirror and and see if what I'm saying has any truth to it at all. Um, if you happen to be listening to this audio, mm-hmm. and one of the key aspects when I read the book was uh, driving home our own culture here at Aviva about not just providing continuing professional education for our associates, but life lessons. I'm I'm trying to make that shift that, yes, you're going to get your CPEs for you to renew your license, but if I can't get you to think in a way that the the principles of what I'm teaching, for example, conflict resolution, okay, how do you deal with a client that is just mad about the results, but their objective they're based on objective materials that we've gathered. How do you deal with that that conflict? And 
Yes, I'm going to go through a practical example with clients and some of the technical uh, standards. But at the end of the day, I want to achieve life lessons. I want to hone in on the principal concepts of conflict resolutions that I want our associates to, to walk away and say, you know what, if I have a conflict with my child's teacher or you know, a vendor that, that they hired to fix up their home, you follow. I, I want them to get above and beyond the, the continuing professional education and get something more that they can take to their personal lives, uh, something outside of just the work environment. And, and I think you hit a home run uh, in sharing about those professionals because I've seen it myself at the big four, <clears throat> having worked at two of them, uh, where they're just day in and day out cranking 12-hour days, and they wanted to feel significant in the office. That that was their zone. And, uh, you know, I would ask about, dare I say, religion. It would, you know, I, I went to church on a regular basis. I, I would inquire about those hard workers. Well, you know, do you at least, on God's day, <laughs> do you at least take a day off? And their response was something you know, a little off about, well, no, no, that's when I get caught up on reading or I, I do something else. I thought, wow, I mean, that, that, you know, it just didn't, wasn't my core value to do that. And I thought, well, at some point you're either going to, you know, drive yourself to the grave, okay, because I don't think mentally you can keep that up uh, forever. And, and it, it, what kind of life are you really living if you're constantly just cranking out these chargeable hours without having, you know, that balance, and, and you're right. I mean, it's either they're incompetent and they just need to do more work because they can't get the material or can't produce the results, or there's something else outside of the work that they can't feel that significant or they don't have that, you know, oomph of power or or influence, and, and they just need it. They get, but they can get it at work, and so that's their zone, and they lo- they just automatically gravitate and make excuses to crank out those chargeable hours and, and they refuse to put boundaries and it's um i think those those professionals that read your book well it's gonna it's gonna click it's gonna I, yeah you know it was funny uh my wife and i were on a cruise in russia from st Pe- st petersburg to moscow and uh on just last year and on the cruise there were several uh, partners that had just retired, recently retired from uh, the, one of the big four accounting firms, and because I work with so many uh, of the the big four, I we we had a, we struck up a friendship, and I got to meet the wife as well as the the husband. It was a male, the the husband that was the uh, accountant, and it, it, they were joking initially about when he retired because I know the know the industry so well. I I asked about well. The wife. I said, well, "What was it like to to have him home?" And you should have seen her eyes roll. And she <laughs> said, "I couldn't believe it. I don't. I didn't even hardly know him. I had to find something to get him out of the house." And so he ended up getting a job teaching. Um, but her motivation was to get him out of the house because she didn't know who he was. Uh, he hadn't been there for so many days and hours while he was working um, that she, he totally disrupted her environment. And uh, they were holding it together, and they were happy, and they were trying their best to be shine it on. But it was not necessary to be. I don't think that everybody wants to be in that situation when they do get to the age where maybe they hang up their uh, their spurs, that they come home and nobody knows them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it kind of dovetailed to to another question I had about values, and and in your book, um, you definitely hone in on the importance of understanding, you know, your core values. How important is it to write down our seven values? Well, the number seven, you know, it's biblical maybe, and, and some people say it's the perfect number. That That's just an arbitrary number that I've picked. Uh, but it's a good number, but not necessarily the only number. The key is to understand your values. And uh, there, when I was studying with Drucker at Claremont and some of the other professors working, doing some postgraduate work, one of the books was integrity and our leadership and the search for integrity and they talked about three different types of organizations and leaders those that were driven for results those were politically driven and those that were value driven and so you can be one of the three um, and all will work but the one that I found is most valuable and I think overshadows the other two is having a value focus understanding what you believe in and why you believe in it and living your life uh, on that basis, because when when you retire or when you get uh, to hang up your spurs or when you're on your deathbed, I don't think you're going to be talking about how valuable it was to have X dollars in the bank. It's going to be a lot more uh, related to your values, which will probably relate to family and people more than your toys or your money or your bank account. And if you've not lived your life according to those values, uh, you're going to have regrets. And there's no reason to get to the end of the journey with regrets. If you've listened to this audio or if you've read the book, The CEO Code, you know that you don't have to have regrets. You just have to look in the mirror, face reality, and identify what you really care about. Write it down so that you remember it and so that when you're going to make a decision, you can just look at your little cheat sheet list and you can say, well, really, is this in the best interest of my family or is this for the firm? And how do I make this decision? It just helps, really, really helps make decisions. And to kind of share my own personal story about you know, values, uh, my, my spouse and I are going through our second adoption, and you must take a parenting class. In that parent, parenting class that we took, there were three instructors, and they had us write down five items that were most important to us. Okay. And we wrote them down. Each each person had to do their own. It wasn't by couple. And the instructor then said, okay, throw one of them away. Throw it in the middle of the room and throw it away. The one rule we had <clears throat> was the word family encompassed friends, extended family members, core family members, uh, let's say key associates that you think are your best friends, that word family, that was the rule. You could write that word down, but that meant a whole lot, okay? And so in the practice of throwing one away, we all shared what we threw away, okay? Uh-huh. So some people would say uh, travel, right? Uh, others would say, uh, you know, new clothes, right? you follow? So yeah. then she says, throw another one away, another and another. And obviously the aha moment <laughs> hits the group, What's, what's left? What's left? You're left with one item there. And as you can imagine, the word family was there. Uh, and, and in one instance, it was, you know, family encompassed with God. 
you know, there was a spiritual aspect. So in terms of writing it down, right, I mean, that was a, a perfect example for me when I was reading through those seven. It's like, you know, this is a practical example, not only in these parenting classes, but just professionally when you're making those core decisions on who to join and, uh, you know, should you make that international move like most of the big four firms make you do for two years in order for you to be partner, well, what's most important to you? Writing that down will solidify for you, you know, what are your priorities? And and I love the way you kind of drove drove home, you know, not living with regrets. And I, we're about to wrap up our interview, which is this has been going just tremendously well. I really appreciate your time. But if if you wanted to give our listeners one key improvement they can capture from reading your book today, what would it be? I think that that's a great question, first of all. And I think that the best thing that they can do is uh, in in the understanding chapter, it talks about looking at understanding as a house with no windows. And you pop out a window for understanding body language. Uh, you pop out a window for understanding uh, accounting. You pop out a window for understanding uh, how tone of voice is so important in the way you communicate. Uh, you pop out another window in understanding behavioral styles. Do this one window at a time. The more windows you put in your little house of understanding, the better you will understand yourself and others and have a successful life. And by pop out a window, I mean go on the Internet, buy books, go to seminars, study it, practice it, and learn about some new, exciting aspects of living a prosperous and a wonderful life, and that way you will be creating your own masterpiece personally and professionally. Thank you, David. This has been uh, just a tremendous interview, and, and I look forward to reading your new book coming up, uh, which, by the way, when is that new book coming out? Oh, that's that's out there a ways. It's a year or two away. Year or two. Okay. Well, you're going to keep us posted so we can have another interview. I just want to say again, thank you, David, for spending time with us. And I hope our listeners, although it is a compliance-focused uh, venue, uh, I stated to you earlier I, I wanted to expose some of these key core principles that it doesn't matter if you're in compliance or any industry. It's, it's just those core principles you can apply today in your work and your, in your life. So, again, I want to say thank you for your time, David, with us and having this interview. Thank you, Sonia, very much. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.